Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 22 as we continue looking at this epistle, this letter from the Apostle Paul. So Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 2. Well, if there ever was a nation that was the apple of God's eye, surely it would be Israel. Surely it would be the Jewish people. I mean, just think about the Old Testament. The Israelites are God's chosen people. They were set apart. They were different from all other nations, from all other ethnicities. They were His prized possession. I mean, if you think about throughout their entire history, it was literally the Israelites versus the world. That, that, that was their history, whether it was the Egyptians or the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It was the Israelites versus everyone else. That was their history. And this mindset, this trajectory continued into the times of the New Testament, into the ministry of Jesus. It was the Jews versus everyone else. I mean, think about Jesus and his disciples and conversations they had regarding the Roman Empire, right? The evil, oppressive government. The disciples thought, when are you going to deliver the Jewish people from this oppression, this dominion, these Gentile rulers? Think about the disciples and talking to Jesus saying, hey, is, is now the time? Are, are you about to restore the kingdom? Are you about to, about to save the Israelites and, and dominate everyone else? Is the time now, is what they would ask Jesus? Since the Jews were God's chosen people, it seemed logical that it was them versus everyone else. This attitude, this mindset is Phariseeism 101, isn't it? This is the mindset of the Pharisees. We are gods, and you're not. And it led to pride and arrogance and lack of love for other. But, but through that history, right, up until the time of Jesus, when Jesus comes, something happens. Jesus comes as, by the way, the Jewish Messiah, but as Jesus comes, he transforms this mindset. He, he totally turns this mindset upside down, this mindset that is characterized the history of the Israelites. Jesus comes and transforms the common perceptions of race and ethnicity, specifically as it relates to the Israelites, to the Jews. And the main way that Jesus transformed this mindset was to totally or completely redefine how the people of God are identified. So as Jesus comes, he says, okay, it's going to be different now. God's people are going to be identified differently than it has been. That's what Jesus does. One way he does this is to challenge stereotypes throughout his ministry. He, he uses stories and parables and real-life examples where the, 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 the person you're supposed to imitate, the, the protagonist, the hero, is actually someone that the Jews would have despised. So this is what he does with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the Samaritan is the non-Jew who is the hero, and Jesus says, go be like him. That, that, that would have caught a lot of people off guard. Because they would assume that the Jewish priest coming down would have been the good neighbor. Jesus says, no, actually, they failed their neighbor, and it was the Samaritan that was the hero. Or he does this with the woman at the well. He sends his disciples into food. He says, I'm going to talk to this woman, this Samaritan woman. His disciples say, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. What's he doing? And he, he, he speaks salvation to her. Or the, the well-known parable of the publican or the tax collector and the, the Pharisee. 
I mean, he says, here's these two people, a Pharisee, which would have been thought, oh, he, this person knows God, and here's the tax collector, they would say, he doesn't know God. And Jesus tells the story in such a way that at the end, the conclusion is that the bad person is right with God when they go home. And so he transforms this understanding. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that one of the main purposes of Jesus' earthly ministry was to redefine how the people of God were identified. Or to put it another way, Membership in the people of God, being part of the kingdom, required new birth, being born again, which the implication is it's no longer ethnic. So when Jesus comes, it's not as though Jewish people are automatically in. This is something new that Jesus brings. So it's not about being Jewish, it's not about circumcision anymore, it's not about ethnicity. Being part of this kingdom that I'm bringing, Jesus says, it's not a birthright. And this was radical. As Jesus preaches this, it's radical. It doesn't go well for Jesus among his contemporaries, does it? Right? He, he's, he's killed for things like this. Nevertheless, with the coming of Jesus, the new identifier of God's people was no longer ethnicity, no longer circumcision. The new identifier, what Jesus says and what the New Testament confirms, is that you're identified with how you relate to Jesus. That's how you know whether you're part of the people of God or not. Jesus is the point. The identifier is how you're relating to Jesus. So Jesus is the culmination of God's plan, the fulfillment of all that God had done with the Israelites. It's not as though it was all a mistake. It was all leading up to Jesus as the culmination of God's plan. He's the fulfillment of all that God had done. He Jesus steps on the stage as the substance that every type and shadow had been pointing to or preparing the way for. He was the one that every promise to Abraham and David and Isaiah and all the patriarchs, all these promises that were made to the Israelites, are, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. He's the point of it all. Jesus appears and he becomes the one who clearly marks and identifies the people of God, which means that the benefits or the advantages of the Jewish people were only beneficial or advantageous to the extent that they led to faith in Jesus. So Paul will say, yes, there's advantage in being Jewish, but the advantage is that you have this whole long history that, that you have a foundation that when Jesus just plugs in one little piece and it all makes sense. That's the advantage. You have the patriarchs. You have that family line. But what Jesus doesn't say is if you're Jewish, you're okay. No, you're Jewish as the advantage of being a Jew is only beneficial to the extent that it leads you to faith in Jesus. Which means that all the history of Israel is like this big arrow or a big road sign. Boys and girls, it's like Jesus is a big road sign saying, here comes the Messiah. Or all of Israel's history saying, here comes Jesus. Get ready. Get ready. He's coming. He's coming. So Jesus comes. He has a context, a Jewish context in which that he drops into. He comes on the stage as the fulfillment of all that had come before. Which means that Jewish people who miss Jesus don't have blessings. There's not a blessing in being Jewish if you miss Jesus. The whole point is that it's to lead you to Jesus. So if you're a Jew and you miss Jesus, you forfeit the advantage because it was never only or primarily about being Jewish. It was being Jewish only to the extent that it pointed you to Jesus or to faith. And so as Jesus steps on the stage, he says, I'm the way. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way to the blessings. I'm the way to eternal life. I'm the way to all the promises that were made to all the patriarchs. It's all about me. And when it's all about Jesus, it's no longer about ethnicity. Through Jesus, 
access to God is granted to Jew and Gentile alike because it's not about ethnicity. Access is granted based on faith, on one's relationship to Jesus. And this was one of, if not the issue in the New Testament. This is the question that, that, that the apostles are wrestling with. How can someone claim to have a relationship with God? How can someone claim to have access to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob without going through or observing the Jewish customs and regulations? He's the God of the Jews. How can you claim to have access to him if you, don't, if you have disregard for the Jews? And they wrestle with that. That's a real question. I mean, this is the book of Acts is filled with this. I mean, think about Peter and his experience with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. God has to literally give him a dream and says, it's okay for Gentiles to receive the gospel. I mean, there's this a sheet with, with unclean animals, and he says, don't declare unclean what I declare clean. And I have declared the Gentiles clean because it's never been about Jew Gentiles. It's been about Jesus. Or Acts chapter 15, the, the Jerusalem council. This is a big deal. They, they want to know. So you have the gospel spreading. You have lots of non-Jews who are putting their faith in Jesus and, and clearly being evidenced, their conversion is being evidenced by the reception of the Holy Spirit. And people are coming down from Jerusalem saying, wait, wait, we know you got the Holy Spirit, but you got to be circumcised too. Because this is a Jewish thing, you know. And then Paul and, and, and Peter later would say, no, 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 no. It's, it's not about circumcision. It's not about Jew. It's about Jesus. And so this is a huge New Testament issue. And this is, this is the, the issue that our passage addresses here in Ephesians chapter 2, this Jewish-Gentile thing. And so I know that was a lot of introduction, but, but I think that helps set the stage for what we find here in our passage. So Ephesians chapter 2, following, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 of chapter 2. So listen to Paul as he writes, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles... Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's done this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let, let's pray as we begin. Lord, this is your word, your inspired, 
your breathed out word that has come to us through the Apostle Paul, given by your spirit, breathed out by your spirit. And so we pray that as we listen to your word, that Lord, just as we look outside and we see the the precipitation and the rain falling down, Lord, just as you say that the rain and the snow, they come down from heaven, they don't don't return until they've accomplished their purpose. And you say that so is the case with your word. We pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in our lives and in the life of this church as a result of our hearing and thinking about these verses. And so Lord, we pray that your word would work among us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so our outline, there's, there's three, three points here in chapter 2. And they all have to do with Jesus. Jesus is the main idea. So first we're going to see verses 11 through 13. We're going to see brought near through Christ. Then second, we're going to see reconciled through Christ in verses 14 through 18. Then finally, verses 19 through 22, we're going to see built upon Christ. Or God's temple built Upon Christ. So let's let's begin there first in verses eleven through thirteen. So so even even before we look at that at, at verses eleven through thirteen, as we as we come to this passage, it's it's clear that Paul is focusing specifically on his on his Gentile audience. So you see that right there in verse eleven, right? You Gentiles. So so he's clearly focusing on his mainly Gentile audience and their experience. And he's urging his Gentile audience to remember their former state, which is apart from Christ primarily, but but also apart from Israel, so that as they remember where they've come from and they recognize where they are now, as they, they remember, I think Paul's point is that they recognize the drastic change that's happened, they will rejoice and give thanks to God that now they are included in Christ. And so it's very similar to what's happened in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. So it says, remember you as a sinner... Right here, here's, here's every human dead in sins and trespasses, following all, here, here's this that's been made alive with Christ, that's, that's, that's human experience, that's Christian testimony. Well, now, his Gentiles, here's another version of what you've experienced. You once were far, but now you've been brought near. You once were dead, but now you're alive. And so it's very much in line with what he's done in verses 1 through, 11, 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And so he wants these Gentiles to recognize that through Jesus they now have peace with God, the one true God, but also he wants them to note that their relationships within the body of Christ, he wants those relationships to appropriately, appropriately reflect this new reality, the new reality that it's, it's no longer distinct ethnically. It is, it is one. There's a oneness that's to characterize the body of Christ. Peace has come through Jesus. That's what we want as Gentile readers to know. And so he wants his, his readers to be confident in who they are, that they're confident in their full inclusion. So they're not second-class citizens. You as Gentiles, Paul is saying, is you are full members. And, and I, I dare say that everyone here is, is included in the Gentile audience, that we're not ethnic Jews. And the promise for us is that full inclusion has come to us through Jesus. So let's look there, verses 11 through 13, brought near through Christ. So as I said, he's focusing on his Gentile audience. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So, so that's a long way to introduce. Paul wants to focus on the Gentile experience, the separation that the Gentiles once experienced, and he, he wants them to know that, that that separation was based on ethnic division. So there's two categories. There's a circumcision and there's an uncircumcision. 
And so Paul, as he refers to these two categories, right, he's making ethnic distinctions. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. So I want you to remember, you Gentiles, you once were not circumcised. You were part of the uncircumcised. And as Paul mentions these categories, we should notice why Paul does this first, but also why he doesn't do this first. He does this to mention that at one time, Gentiles were alienated from God, from life with God. They were. They were not Jewish. There was a time when the Jews were the ones who had access to God. And so once the Gentiles, remember, at one time, as a Gentile, your family tree had no connection with God whatsoever. So he wants them to know that. But he does not mention these categories so that the Gentiles will see the solution to the problem as circumcision. He's not doing that. In fact, I'd say he takes a shot at circumcision here when he refers to it as something done with human hands. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want the Gentiles to see the solution to the problem is just to get circumcised, to just become Jewish, and that'll answer your problem. That is not the solution. So Paul, even here at the outset, is saying, oh yeah, you once were called uncircumcision by the circumcision, which by the way is just done by human hands. It's not a divine mark, it's just done by human hands. I think that's his shot at circumcision. The gospel that these Gentiles are called to believe was not a gospel of circumcision. So Paul does not mention these categories so he can say, okay, you just got to be Jewish, become Jewish, and then you're, you're good. That's not what he's doing. Instead, Paul's going to point them back to the lack of peace of God, lack of peace with God, in order to show them that you once had no peace, but now you do, not by being Jewish, but because of Jesus. By faith in Jesus, that's where your peace is found. And so if someone wants to, wants to belittle you because you're not Jewish, don't be belittled. Because it's not about being Jewish. It's not about the bearing the marks of ethnic Jews. It is about Jesus. Which is why he identifies that time, not primarily as a time of uncircumcision, but look there in verse 12. Paul says, remember that at, this, at that time you were separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. And at the end of the day, most significantly, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. In other words, your issue was that you were without God. Not that you were without the benefits of being Jewish, but you were without God in the world. That's what he wants them to know. Now, I do want to make clear that there were benefits of being Jewish prior to the coming of Christ. Let, let me just say that. Paul will say that. And we can write down Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Paul sees a benefit in being Jewish. In fact, when Paul is on his missionary journeys, when he goes to a new city, what's the first place he goes? Without fail, he goes to the synagogue. Because these Jews, this is the, the, the Messiah has come from them. He's their people. So he says, I need to preach the gospel to the Jews. Now, he's met over and over and over again with, with hard-hearted Jews that say, you're crazy. And so then he goes out. And he goes to the Gentiles, but there's benefit in the Jews. The Jews of all people should have recognized who Jesus was. So there's benefit to being Jewish. But all of that changed when Jesus came. It changed. And so the other side is what Paul is, he's not, he's not referring to the benefit of being Jew. It's the other side of the coin that Paul's referring to where he says the disadvantages of being Gentiles. There were disadvantages to being Gentiles. And that's what Paul is focusing on here. I mean, if you think about the normal Gentile understanding 
of, of life in this world before they became Christians. I mean, think we're in, we're in Ephesus. There, there's the great temple of Artemis, and there's all these Greek gods, these Roman gods who, who, who pollinate the city. And so all of these Gentiles are, are spend their days worshiping these gods, some that they don't even know. And so the Gentile understanding of worship and religion and the gods, before they met Jesus, they had no idea who Jesus was. They had no context of a Jewish Messiah. They had no idea that there was one God who created all things. They, they thought that the, these other gods were all part of the plan. They were strangers to God, the one true God. They were strangers to His promises. They didn't have the benefits of going to synagogue every week as kids. They didn't have the history. This is why there is a benefit. So if you're a parent, it's beneficial for you to have your kids in church because they're getting the foundation of what Christianity is. Now, when they get older, some will forsake it, but it's still good for them to have that background. And, and some of you could probably attest their stories where they come back. They say, oh, I knew it. I, I was raised in the church. I know the gospel. Then they come back because those seeds were sown. There's benefit to growing up in the church. And that's what Paul's saying here. There's benefit of being Jewish, but there's also a, a disadvantage of being Gentile. And so Paul is reminding his Gentile audience, you truly had no hope in this world before Jesus. You were without God. That's where you were. But, verse 13, now, Gentile Christian, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. You who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice it wasn't by being circumcised or keeping the law or becoming Jewish. You were brought near through Christ. It was through Christ that the stranger is brought near. It's through his death that a drastic dramatic change has occurred for these Gentiles. It is through Christ, which leads us to our second point. There as Paul continues, verses 14 through 18. So they've been reconciled through Christ. They have, they've been brought near through Christ, but they've also been reconciled through Christ. So there in verse 14, as Paul begins, there's no question as to how or why this change occurred. He himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, Paul says. He is our peace. Jesus is the means of this new peace, of this reconciliation. This peace, this new peace, according to call, there's two dimensions to it. So remember up in verse 12, the Gentiles were without God in the world, but now they've been brought near to God. So they've been reconciled. They have peace with God through Jesus. But also here in verse 14, Paul refers to Jesus as our peace. And so not only through Jesus do the Gentiles have peace with God, but they also have peace with the Jews. So now there's a second dimension of the peace. Not only has Jesus reconciled his people to God through his death, but he has also reconciled his people to each other. And in particular, this text, he's reconciled those of Jewish birth and those of Gentile birth. They're now reconciled in Christ. He is our peace, Paul says. He continues in verse 14 that he, that is Jesus, made us both one both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Again, this is Jewish Gentile language. The two, once separate, have now become one. In Christ, Paul says, the two have become one. And the two, in this context, are clearly the Jews and the Gentiles. And in the coming together, notice, there is one new race, totally different than what was before. There's one new man, one new people. 
So Paul teaches, I think Paul understands that the coming of Christ, that as a result, right, it's no longer a Jew-Gentile. The world is no longer divided, Jew-Gentile. With the coming of Christ, now there's three groups. There's Jew, there's Gentile, and there's those in Christ. There's a new category of people. Do you see, that's, that's so important to what Paul's arguing here. He doesn't say, here's Jew, here's Gentile. If you want to be near to God, you just got to move over to the other camp. Or Jew, you got to forsake your law and move over to the Gentile camp. No, he says, if you want to be new, if you want to be part of God's people, you got to be in this totally new camp, which is in Christ. So your primary identity is not in Jewishness or anything else, but in Jesus. That's his point. The two have become one. Now there's a new race, a new people a new humanity. And this new humanity is identified by its relationship to Jesus. And it's created, according to Paul, look there as he continues in verse 14, because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. The divider, the fence, has been demolished, Paul says. And this dividing wall, there's there's a number of, of differences about the specifics, but, but I think it's safe to say that he is in some sense most broadly, generally referring to the Mosaic law. Right? The dividing wall, this fence, was, was attached to the Mosaic law. I mean, the, the main reason I, I think this is the case because down in verse 15, he continues his description of this dividing wall of hostility as constituting the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Right? That's Jewish law. That's the Mosaic law. And so, so without knowing the specifics, the main idea is simply to recognize that this divider between the Jews and the rest of the world was the Mosaic law, right? The Jews were separate, and anyone who wanted to be part of the Jews had to adopt their law, right? So, so you sojourner, you, you stranger, Old Testament, hey, you want to become one of us? Yeah, just get circumcised, become a Jew, and then all the promises are yours. This was a Mosaic law that divided, and it was dis- displayed in many aspects of Jewish life. One of the most clear was the, the construction of the temple. So, so the, the temple in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, there were divisions between Jew and Gentile. There was a court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, as they went to worship, so, so even if a, a Gentile had adopted Jewish practice, they said, oh, I want to worship the God of the Jews. I want to become a God worshiper. Right? There, there's examples of this all, all throughout the New Testament. But if they want to do that, when they go to worship at the temple, they're still separate. They can't go past the court of the Gentiles because that's reserved for the Jews and the Holy of Holies. The, the court of the Gentiles is where the, there's the money changers. Right? They're the insignificant lot. And so there's still this distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles, they, they had nosebleed seats at the temple. And this was all part of the Old Covenant There was a clear division. And so according to Paul, when Jesus comes, he tears down this wall. He he obliterates the dividing marker between Jew and Gentile so that there's no longer division. He doesn't eliminate the dividing marker simply for the sake of eliminating the division. He doesn't say, okay, now it's gone. Okay, job's done. No, he, he tears it down so that he might create a new man. So that those that were divided, the divider's gone, so now they can be united in Jesus. And so there's one new race, this one new group of people that are united in Christ, so that the division is no longer evidenced by one's relationship to the Mosaic law. 
I mean, so, so this, is, this is what the Jews are wrestling with as they come to faith in Christ. Well, can I still offer sacrifices? I mean, can I still go to the temple? How, how does this play out? He doesn't say you've got to stop being a Jew. He just says your, your relationship to Jesus trumps every other identity that you have. It's not about being Jewish. Just like the Gentiles. There's one new race, and your identity is shaped by how you relate to Jesus. Jesus is the one who, through his death, was able to pre- preach peace to those far Notice that Jesus preached peace to those far Gentile and to those near Jew. The Jesus peace is for Jew as much as it is for Gentile. Race, ethnicity was no longer a benefit or a detriment. Jesus was the means to peace. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, only those in Christ. I mean, I think about how revolutionary this was for the Gentiles, the early Gentile believers. They were foreigners to the covenant. They didn't know who Abraham was, and yet they're children of Abraham by faith, by their union to Jesus. What is that? I have no idea. I don't know what this is about. I don't know what the promises to David are. I don't don't know those stories. I don't know David and Goliath. And yet, in Christ, Paul is saying, you know God, that same God that was at work in the Israelites. You are now His, His people, even though you don't know what it was about. Because it's not about knowing that or being part of that. It's about Jesus. That's His point. Now in Christ, Paul is saying, you Gentiles have free and equal access to the Father on the basis of the work of Christ and the presence of the Spirit. I mean, did you notice that there in verse 18? I mean, that's Trinitarian language. Through Him, that is through Christ, we both... Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. We both do, Paul says. They're no second-class citizens. All are reconciled and have peace through Christ. So Gentile access isn't something different than Jewish access. It's not as though that Jesus is the door for the Gentiles, while the law or obeying Moses is the way for the Jews. No, there's one new man who's formed in Christ. And Paul's point is that the Gentiles have equal standing. I mean, I thought about this, that that there isn't a good illustration that I could think of. Maybe you have have a better one, but here's what I thought about. And it's silly, and it doesn't do good justice, do it full justice. But so when when we moved into our neighborhood, we have a a, a pool. I grew up, I didn't play, I didn't do swimming right on vacation. That's what swimming was for. I wasn't part of a swim team, but we moved into a neighborhood that had a swim team. And so Jancy and I, we say, well, our kids are going to be on the swim team. And so we sign up, but as we are going to these practices and as we're going to these meets, we have no idea what any of this is about. We are lost. And there's a sense in which some of the parents could make us feel like, you're not a true swim team parent because you, you don't know what, what laps are. You, you don't know what stroke judges are. Or you and so we could feel that. And so it's like, well, yeah, I, I'm just here. I'm just here. I'm not part of the team. We're just here. I just want my kids to get some exercise. Right? But, but I, because of my membership, because I was viewed by the Willow Oaks Association as full members, it didn't matter if I'd ever been to a swim meet before. I paid our dues, we paid our dues, and we were accepted members so that we as first-year parents were just as much members as the, the 12-year parents. And so that, I think that gives a sense of what these Gentiles, we don't know. We just know that Jesus died for us and we, we heard the gospel and we believed. We don't know about all, all David and all, we don't know, but, but we believe we have peace with God through Jesus. And Paul's saying, that's exactly right. 
It's because of Jesus that you have access, not your lack of Jewish experience or knowledge. And so here in this final section, verses 19 through 22, we see Paul continues to describe this, this new people. And by doing so, he's, he's continuing to encourage the Gentiles. So look there, verse, verses 19 through 22. In these final verses of chapter 2, the consequences for these Gentile readers of Christ's mighty reconciling work are now drawn out in terms which transcend the old Jew-Gentile divisions and which describe their new position. So these Gentiles, their new position in Christ, they're described as fellow citizens with God's people, as full members of God's household, part of his house. that's That's how he describes it in this last section. So in verse 19, All right, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Do you remember up in verse 12? What what were they? Verse 12, they were strangers and aliens. That is what they once were. That is what once was their status. But now, Paul says, in Christ, because of what Christ has done, they are strangers and aliens, no more, outsiders, no more. They have been included. And that inclusion is full and complete. Look at how verse 19 continues. So you're no longer strangers or aliens, that's not what you are, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God. So instead of being strangers and aliens, the believing Gentiles are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now it's important to note, and it's going to depend on what translation you have, but in the ESV the term is translated saints. I think other translations use saints, well, another translation that's all used God's people, but, it, but, but Paul says you are fellow citizens with the saints, or you're fellow citizens with God's people. And the point, regardless of what translation you have, is what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say to these Gentiles that in Christ you are fellow citizens with the Jews. That's not what he says. He says you're fellow citizens with the saints, the household of God. I mean, throughout this whole section, Paul's been careful not to teach that the Gentiles have been added to Israel. So I'm just like, okay, now you're added on but that they together now with the Jews form a new entity. It's a new man. It's a new body, and it's a one body. So that the saints here, they're not Jewish Christians, and the saints here aren't Gentile Christians. The saints are just Christians, those in Christ. And so Paul says, you're fellow citizens with the people of God, with those who are united to Jesus by faith. And this new man, this new race, this new people of God consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And it consists of both because inclusion is not ethnic or legal. Inclusion comes in and through Jesus. And so Paul wants these Gentile Christians to know that they are not visitors. They're not second-rate citizens in this believing community. They are full members. And Paul continues this emphasis, you're part of the household of God. And then Paul goes on to explain, well, what is the household of God? Verse 20 This household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so Paul argues this new people, this one body, has a foundation, and this foundation has a cornerstone. And so the clearest point is that Jesus is the cornerstone. That's the clear point there in verse 20, that, that Jesus is the foundation stone. He's the most significant part of the foundation. One one commentator notes that this large stone, this word cornerstone, bore much of the weight of the entire building in this time. 
It tied the walls together for me. This is a huge stone. It's not just this capstone over the arch, or it's not just some random corner piece that you can write your name and the date that the building was built. No, this is a central foundational piece. In fact, in the early 1990s, the archaeologists discovered these five enormous stones that were the, the cornerstones of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And the largest stone, I mean, just to give you a picture of, of when Paul says the cornerstone is Jesus, one of these stones, the largest of these five that were, that were discovered in the 90s, was 55 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide. This is, a, this is a cornerstone, and this cornerstone weighed approximately 570 tons. So, so it's not some small stone when Paul says Jesus is the cornerstone. It is built, this household of God is built on Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And so that's the main part, the main foundation part. But notice Jesus wasn't the only key part of the foundation that Paul mentioned. At the beginning of verse 20, he refers to two other groups of people who are significant parts of the foundation. So you see there are the other two parts that, of this foundation, the household of God and new people, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul says. Now the first thing to note is that the prophets here, he's not talking about Old Testament prophets. That's not who Paul's talking about. Okay, so, so this is not Old Testament prophets. First, chronologically, that doesn't make sense. If he's talking about Old Testament prophets, then it would seem to make sense if you say the, the prophets and the apostles, because that, that was the sequence, the prophets and then the apostles. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't use that chrono, chronology. But second, it's not uncommon for other places, instances in the New Testament, where apostles and prophets are both mentioned side by side, and the prophet there is. It's clearly not Old Testament. It's clearly a New Testament office. So you can jot these down later in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Uh, in, in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, verse 11 that he gave, that's Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So here's this whole list of gifts that Jesus has given to this church, and the apostles and the prophets are mentioned side by side. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul used the same, same sequence, at least at the beginning. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. Okay, so prophets here is not Old Testament prophets, right? Even there, the logic of 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is apostles come first, then come, then come prophets, so Paul here is referring to this New Testament office, this New Testament category of person who was a prophet. Now we know the apostles, right? We, we did that, remember in, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Ephesians, Paul is one of the apostles. These apostles were, were those that were specifically commissioned and sent by Jesus. So he sends out his 12 and then a few others, his, his witnesses, his apostles. They were sent by Christ and were the link between Jesus and the rest of the church. Right? So these apostles were foundational Right, throughout the book of Acts, they play an authoritative role. As for the prophets, it's not as clear. Who were they? What, what, how did they function? And, and here we don't have time to go into the specifics. Maybe there will be a whole other sermon on that. But I'll simply say, without knowing the specifics, I think we can know what Paul means here. And I think all he's saying is that these groups of people, the, the apostles and the prophets, they're in the same category, and they formed along with Jesus, the foundation. They were part of the foundation of this house, of this household of God. And his point is that the Gentiles have been included in the household of God, which is built upon Jesus himself and the authoritative prophets 
and apostles. And so these, these groups of people, without, even, without knowing specifically about the prophets, they were commissioned by God and they had authority. And Paul is saying that the foundation is laid by God through his son and through his apostles and prophets. And you Gentiles are part of that house. You are part of that house. You, in other words, believing Gentiles, are part of the house that's been built as a result of God's own divine revelation. The house that God himself is building. The house that God is building of his own people. And then there in verse 22, as he concludes, he makes a statement that parallels with that of verse 21. So verse 22, he says, In him you also, that's in Jesus, you also, Gentile, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so by concluding there in verse 22, by concluding chapter 2 in this way, Paul reminds these Gentiles what a magnificent change has occurred. I mean, he, he comes full, full circle. Remember, at one time you were this way, verse 11, but now in him you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What they once were compared with what they are now couldn't have been more different. And Paul's point is that Jesus has made all the difference. And so just in conclusion, by way of application, I mean, here at the end, I think it's really basic. I think that the application for us here is simply, you can, with four words, Jesus is our peace. I mean, I think that's what we should, should take away from this passage, that Jesus is our peace. And just like Paul was saying, this peace is manifested in two different ways. We have peace with God through Christ. So we have peace through Jesus. We have peace with God. Vertical peace. And that peace comes only through Jesus. And so, boys and girls, if you've grown up going to church, and right, if you've gone to church your whole life, you, you never miss a Sunday, you, it is not okay for you to say, I've been in church my whole life, I'm good with God. Peace with God doesn't come through going to Sunday school or knowing the right answers even. Peace with God comes through faith in Jesus alone. And so Sunday school teachers, you should be promoting faith in Jesus, not moralism. It's not about being good. It's about trusting in Jesus. And so if you're here, not, if you're, not just boys and girls, but if you're an adult here, just because you're baptized in a church, just because your grandparents follow the Lord, just because your parents follow the Lord, that doesn't mean that you're following the Lord. If, you have, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you don't have peace with God. And so you can have peace with God through Jesus and through Jesus alone. And so if you're here and not a Christian, peace is available to you today through faith in Jesus. You can know peace this morning by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. If you are a Christian, remember what you once were. You once were without peace in this world. But you heard the gospel, you believed in Jesus, and he has given you peace. And then the other application, the other manifestation of this peace, which I think is more applicable here for our context, is that in Christ we have peace with one another. The body of Christ should be a pointer to peace. Above all else, we should be a gathering of peace. And we're only that when those of us within this gathering have relationships marked by peace. The church is not a place for you to come and ignore the people that annoy you. That is not peace. That's just avoiding potential conflict. The church must be marked by peace because that's what Jesus purchased. 
One new man, one new body. This Fox Hill Road Baptist Church is a manifestation of the peace that Jesus has purchased by his blood. And so no division among the members of this church should exceed the unity that comes through Jesus. None. None. Now, we don't have Jewish-Gentile division, but we have division, don't we? We have racial division. We have racial division, right? Our church should be a place where there's racial unity, where, where every tribe and tongue finds peace with one another through Jesus. Friends, this is one of the evangelistic acts of the church. When you have people who are so different, whether color of skin, whether stage in life, whether social class, no matter what, they're so different, the world sees us all walking through these doors every Sunday and says, how does that happen? When different people are united in Jesus by the bond that comes through Jesus, it is evangelistic, and the watching world says, I want that. But when we as a church are divided by things that are less important, less central, we preach an anti-gospel. It could be as silly as Redskins versus Cowboys. It is silly, especially because the Redskins are so bad. It could be as silly as sports, or it could be as, as serious as politics. If your politics, if the view of your politics is such that you cannot sit beside someone across the aisle in the same pew on Sunday morning, you are worshiping your politics. And we live in a country where politics are being worshipped. And we have Christians who are fighting about these things. Have disagreements, yes. Absolutely, have disagreements. But the, the peace that Jesus purchased triumphs political division. And so maybe it just means you fight for peace by not mentioning politics. And that's going to be hard for some of you. But if you know that that's a point with someone else, just don't mention it. That's loving. And so I, I, just, I want us as a church to be marked by this peace because Jesus purchased peace for his body and we ought to display it. No division ought to supersede the unity that we have in Christ. And so that's my prayer. And, and so as members here, pray for peace. Pray for peace among us, right? If you hear others, if you hear me talking in ways that, that don't promote peace, stop me. Stop them, and the, that's the best thing for you to do. I'm, I don't want you to talk about that person. Go talk to them. That's not cultivating. That's not working towards peace. When there's conflict, when there's disagreement, which there is, there's going to be, but when that comes, we address it face-to-face, -face, standing in front of another person saying, here's how I disagree, in our union, how can we work through this disagreement? We don't go to our friends. We don't go to others and talk about it. And so, so pray for peace, but, but the last thing I'll say, work for peace. Work for peace with other members. Well, let, let me pray as, as we close.